Hey, Darren, I, I want to take a minute to let our fans know about something really, really exciting. Uh, I've joined forces with. I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I, I got something to share with you. And it's really, really exciting. Okay. Um, on June 4th, the 39th anniversary of the release of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, mm. we're launching a Kickstarter, a Kickstarter for our new documentary, 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever. Uh, mm. Roger Lay, who did all the uh, Star Trek special features, Star Trek documentaries, and myself are going to be producing a spectacular documentary that will take you inside the greatest movies released in 1982. It's going to be something really special. And, you know, we, 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 um, we put together an amazing team of people and uh, we're reaching out to you, the fans, to help support this. So if you go to Kickstarter, um, you can find out more about the campaign uh, why uh, we think it's so important and what this is going to be. And, and if you uh, if it's interesting to you, if it, it tickles your fancy, um, we hope you'll choose to support us. Um, and you can uh, there's some great rewards, including I know you're going to be shocked. You can get autographed copies of my book. You may even win a chance to uh, come on this very podcast and watch Darren and I record an episode when we're back in the studio. First and, prize uh, is a non autographed copy of your book. <laughs> those are more, much more rare. Second prize, a set of steak knives. That'd be funny. We should have that as a reward where you can win a set of steak knives. Now, for those of you who are wondering, why was 1982 so incredible? Well, we all know about Star Trek II with Wrath of Khan. But let me just give you a a few of the other movies that came out that year. Blade Runner, Conan, Poltergeist, Halloween 3, The Dark Crystal, Swamp Thing, The Verdict, Tootsie, what the Citizen Kane of teen exploitation movies, not to be confused with the Citizen Kane of Star Trek episodes, Fast Tom Series Run High, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, Cat People, Creep Show, The Thing, Tron, The Atomic Cafe, it, 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 Dark Crystal. I mean, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary year, and, and we're going to document it like no one has ever done it before with exclusive interviews, clips behind the scenes, storyboards. Uh, it's going to be amazing. It's, we have really, really exciting plans. And, and obviously, we want to have it come out for the 40th anniversary uh, of these films next, next summer. So uh, please, if, you, if you're interested, check out 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever on Kickstarter today. That's extraordinary. Sounds like fun. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts, and we're now the hosts of Inglorious Trexperts Briefing Room, curated audio commentaries of significant Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Discovery. So if you want to check out exciting, incisive audio commentaries with the writers, producers, stars, and Trexperts, you want to listen to Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you get your podcasts. That's Trexperts briefing room that's a separate feed from inglorious trexperts and you can listen to curated audio commentaries with great commentary of some of your favorite and possibly least favorite star trek episodes of all time you don't want to miss this kids give these episodes another ear if you think you felt a great disturbance in the force you're not wrong ed gross and me mark a altman have a new oral history coming out this july from saint martin's press It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, 
pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the inglorious Trexperts. I said that we were aware of the facts, Lieutenant. I don't tell you how to run your platoon. Don't tell me how to make pictures. It's not fiction, Mr. Sanders. I mean, you just don't rewrite history. Nobody's trying to rewrite history. Uh, but, uh, Greg, another lieutenant has a point. Look, maybe we can work it as no, all no, out. No, no, no. It's been worked out, Ruthie. That's the way we go. Well, maybe you do, sir, but the Marine Corps doesn't. I don't care what the Marine well, Corps... I... <laughs> hey, Pete, you understand, don't you? I mean, uh, you were there, but you realize we have to take certain liberties. No, I, uh, I don't think so, Mr. Sanders. Not in this case. We would have been slaughtered if we'd come in under fire. Small beach like that, a concentration of forces in a pocket. You can't make the Marine Corps look like fools, sir. And, you know, we, we've told you in the past that we have a special treat for you, that we have a great episode, that we have something you must listen to that you're going to love. This time we actually mean it. That's right. this is, it's not just hyperbole. It was all lies before, but not this one. We are bringing to you a remarkable conversation with the casting director for the original Star Trek and the and lieutenant. So much more. And yes. so much more. Uh, the great uh, Joe Ducusta. And he is so much uh, so responsible for what we know of as Star Trek. And I'll tell you, you're going to listen to this in the beginning of the conversation. You know, we don't talk a lot about Star Trek because this man has had a remarkable career. Um, he's, 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 you know, when so many people have passed away, uh, like you know, most recently Herb Solo, he is the keeper of the, of the flame. And, uh, it was just, I mean, you, you can tell Darren and I are having such a great time talking to him. And I like to think he was having a great time talking to us. And, and there's just some great stories that you probably never heard about Star Trek and about that era of Hollywood and about Gene. And we even get a little in about uh, Pretty Maids all in a row. So it's the perfect <laughs> interview. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we had a great time talking to him and uh, we hope you enjoy listening yeah so just to set the table uh joe uh just started as an actor um he uh he he was a casting director on the lieutenant later on he worked for desilu and cast the shows as star trek and mission possible he worked on the brady bunch for many years he was at the united artists and he was involved in the casting of uh, movies like year of living dangerously red dawn poltergeist 2 um transylvania 6 5000 which we did not talk about right um and um I think you're really going to find it interesting. I certainly hope so. So uh, without any further ado, let's bring on casting director and Star Trek legend, Joe D'Augusta. Great. And we're welcoming Joe to the show. Welcome. Uh, I want to take you way back to the, the, uh, the lieutenant. Um, and if you can sort of tee up for us, you were making the transition from acting to uh, casting. How did that all come about? And how did you end up on... Uh, on the lieutenant. I love the question. 
right. Uh, there's a young actor, uh, married uh, with one child. And my ex-wife was living with, and my boy were living with her grandmother. Hmm. And I was living out of my car. And I befriended a casting director who had seen me in a play, uh, Night Must Fall. Uh, and uh, he, was, he was trying to give me a, you know, a boost. He put me up for two jobs I didn't get. And um, I went to lunch with him one day. And he said, there's a clerk shop open in the office. Why don't you take it, get yourself on your feet. And uh, then, then, you know, continue with your acting business, you know. So I, I thought about it. And what really hit me is it was I have the advantage of being on the inside. Sure. So I thought, cool. And um, so I took the job as a casting clerk hiring extras. And I, my, uh, my boss was this sour old Codger who wouldn't, who said, don't do anything. Don't touch anything. I'll do it all. So I had just sat around with my arms folded and I'd go running, running a lot around the lot, uh, watching the, uh, the film, the filming of all the movies and TV that was going on until I got kind of upset with them. And I just said, I just sat down at the, we had what we call a teletype in those days where we ordered extras for the different shows. And I just sat down and I said to him, stay, stay, you know, back off, I'm doing this. And uh, so uh, my, um, my work was defined by that stand, I suppose I can say, you know, um, where am I going with this? Oh, okay. Uh, after a while dissolved, um, Don McElwain, the uh, casting director that I'd befriended, uh, needed an assistant. So he got up me to his assistant and I went on the interviews with him. And uh, the casting director for the lieutenant got sick. Hmm. My boss, Al Trisconi, called me in and said, Joe, do you think you could uh, fill in for Bob until he gets, you know, until he gets out of the hospital? And I quickly said, yes. And I, what I knew about actors was, well, what I knew about working actors was zilch. I knew about, I knew about the actors in the theater because I'd been in the theater for five years. And, um, but I decided, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I checked in a number of actors as, as they came in for their early morning calls. And I'd gone on enough interviews with Don McElwain that I had a sense of it. But what I did is I decided to trust the agents. And whatever names they gave me, I wrote on a list and I would present them at the casting meetings like I knew what I was talking about. Right. Right. And uh, every time somebody a director or the associate producer, uh, well, his name was Del Reisman, he was my godsend, would uh, react. 
I'd, I'd look at the name where I didn't have a face. I'd, I'd excuse myself, uh, go out and look up, you know, the picture of the guy. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people buy their pictures, but not by their names. Yeah. Then I'd go and either kill the idea or, or uh, uh, back it, you know. So in short, I faked my way through the lieutenant. I didn't get, now, well, now Bob got, um, you know, came back, ready to go to work. But Gene Roddenberry fired him and hired me. Not because I was a great casting director, not because I was a better casting director, but because I made sure every actor that we hired got a military haircut. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because Bob Bowser was lazy on that end. Mm. You know, and the, you know, the most notable guy that, you know, I sat in the barbershop because we had a barbershop on the lot. I said, no, a little more, a little more, a little more was Dennis Hopper. He says, come on, Joe. <laughs> yeah it's hard to be a counter country a culture rebel when you're getting a military haircut <laughs> um so that's, me, that's the basic story well let me ask you about lieutenant because when you became the casting director was it after the pilot was cast or was it uh you know when the series was going or did he get sick and you take over Pro, you know, prior to the pilot. I mean, were you involved with the casting of Gary? And, um, and no, I was not involved in the pilot, nor was I involved in the series. I came in after it was all already sold and being filmed. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I was just filling in for a casting director, uh, Bob Bowser, who got sick. Right. Uh, <clears throat> and it's, it's interesting because people who would later become much better known for Star Trek, such as Leonard and Michelle, were people that you found for, um, and I guess George for Lieutenant as well. Um, well, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I was going to say. So, can you can you you know was that in your mind? You know, were, were they people? Were there a lot of people you put a pin in and were keeping in mind for the future? Or were you still thinking when this is over, I'm going back to acting? I've had enough of this casting thing. <laughs> well, I, I didn't think I was going to go on to become a casting director at all. I just, I was just filling in, doing a job that, you know, uh, paid a little more money, not that much more, and was more fun. And I had the, uh, uh, the approval of a really major producer. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the, I was one of the. I was one of the team. It's a great feeling when you're just a you know a clerk in the office. Right. Um, yeah. No, my plans were uh, to indeed uh, finish my year out that I promised on. I would stay, and then go back to uh, uh, acting. And uh, I thought I would be able to take advantage of being, you know, making contacts while on the lot. Well, that didn't prove to be true because right. the longer I cast the more my um, identity became as a casting director, not an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Diminished as an actor and increased as a casting director. Uh, Wrong identity. No, what I did, um, because I didn't know anybody, I I didn't really know the working actors. And I was, you know, watching every television show, writing down names as I saw them. Um, uh, you know, the credits at the end and uh, 
you know, trying to build up a, a repertoire of actors that I could present, I brought in, I brought in um, actors from the theater that I was working in, that I'd been working with in my, my acting classes and in the theater. So I got a reputation with the agents around town as a go-to guy if you want to get new people started. Right. <laughs> well, it's, wor- it's worth saying because for our younger listeners, there's no IMDb. There's no home video. So there's no, you know, it's not like you could familiarize yourself with the talent around town by going on a computer. That's about 40 years later. So you, you, all you have is the theater and watching television and looking at the credits and saying, oh, they were good because and, and showcases. It's, you know, there's no other way to really, you know, and look at a headshot and resume and say, oh, they have a good look for this. I'll bring them in. But it's it's a very different, you know, if you're you're just you know, getting into casting and, and not having this deep knowledge of all the actors in town. Well, what I did, my, 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 my system was, as I said, I, I decided to trust the agents who were, you know, m- submitting people the moment uh, a new script came out and I'd write down the names and I'd have to, I'd have to be, you know, I'd take a, a little, a few people from this guy and a few people from that guy and a few people from that guy, but I challenged them. They better be good, <laughs> you know? And then I, when I brought them in, I made the decision whether they were right or not based on the reading. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I didn't know them from Adam. <laughs> and they do the reading. <laughs> and I go, good. Then I'd back them. Or I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you were hired by, by Gene... Um, what was your impression of him? Obviously, he's he's a big guy with a big personality. I mean, he's what we call a character, you know, by any definition, you know. So when he obviously you were grateful that to, to have the gig. Uh, what were some of your what were your thoughts about Gene when you first met him on the lieutenant? I'll see if I can come up with it. But you know, Jim, Gene was like a big teddy bear. That's the only way I can think of because he, he didn't, he didn't, nothing faced him. All the difficulties, he would smoke his cigarette. And uh, in my case, for instance, uh, when when it would be a problem or whatever, he'd say, tell me what to say, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, Everything was, uh, he, he, he was literally great at delegating, I suppose, you know? Mm-hmm. When he hired Bob Justman, Bob, he, he knew Bob Justman would take care of this. If Bob Justman got in trouble, he knew he, could, he Gene Rodberry, would handle it. Right. Probably by saying to Bob, it's the same thing he said to me, you know, tell me what to say. Uh, so uh, you didn't get the feeling that he was a driving producer, you just believed he was he was steering the ship, right? You know. Do you think Do you think one of the things he liked about you were that you were sort of young and new to casting, so you didn't have all these bad habits that you know, or or, or thought you knew more than he did at that point? Because of course he'd only been in the business for a little while and he never run a show before. He'd just been freelance writing. So was there that kind of connection? Not not at all. Not at okay. all. Okay. I. I I don't think he considered, all he considered was I was doing the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he was never, I, I don't even remember him being in the casting sessions unless 
it was an important part and we bring back the choice for him to meet. And he wouldn't know how to read the guy. He wouldn't know how to do it. He'd sit there and talk to him, uh, you know, about uh, life. Right, and right. Uh, say, okay, go ahead. Because he trusted that we were all backing him. And if we didn't, we'd probably pay for it. But I, you know, I don't think anybody wanted to disappoint Gene because he was so goddamn easy. So right. damn easy going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to screw that up. Yeah. <laughs> and did you did you do you find the network was very involved at that point or NBC was sort of disconnected from the show a little bit? Uh, I was too green to know anything about the network being mm. involved at all. I, pr- I probably didn't even know what network we were on, you know. Right, 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 right. So I tuned in. I'd look at, you know, the on the turn, you know, we we turned the channels like the number four. <laughs> right, right, right. I might, I might not have even known it was NBC, you know. <laughs> did, did you ever go? Did you go down to Camp Pendleton at all to the set, or were you strictly working out of your office and never, never went down there? In the office. Yeah. In the office. I, uh, yeah, um, that's true with almost everything I did. I was in the office while everyone else was having fun. <laughs> <laughs> did, of course, did being, you, go ahead. being in the office means that you can avoid a lot of other troubles, too. So uh, yeah, that's yeah, probably, I, there's a good balance there, I think. Yeah, but I wanted to be out there with them. I wasn't, <laughs> mind, I was not a clerk. You wanted to be in the, in the showbiz light. <laughs> I wanted to show what the action was. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, when NBC, oh sorry, go. Ahead. No, the only real taste I got was when they were shooting, and I'd go on the lot, and they go, "Hi, right, Joe, how are you?" You right. know, come over and run your ass. Uh, I can. Uh, there was. A, I don't know if you're going to get around to Michelle Nichols, um, but she was a, a true discovery in my case. In that while I was, you know, doing my gig at uh, MGM, I was still running around to workshops, acting workshops. And I was uh, auditing uh, Frank Severa's workshop. He was a great actor. Uh, and uh, Nichelle Nichols and Don... Um, Marshall? Marshall, thank you for that. Good I see a moment there for a minute. We're doing a scene. And I went, wow, that was great, you know, because, you know, most scenes in acting class are just kind of on the edge of being terrible. <laughs> right. <laughs> this was really good. So we had at MGM uh, a scene day for casting directors to watch new actors. So I brought Michelle and Don in to do that, that scene. And... Uh, you know, everybody kind of liked them, but you know, nobody paid that much attention to the scene days. They, they were wor- they they were worried. You know, they were more wor- the casting to, uh, casting directors in the tar- department were more concerned with casting established actors rather than new actors. I was the one that wanted new actors because I didn't know the established actors, and uh, the show the show came up uh, on the lieutenant. And I brought Don and her, and her in to do the scene, and I included Jean in the scene, and uh, they got the job, boom, like that. And I understand uh, 
from another interview that the show has never aired. I don't know about that, but no, uh, it did. It did air. Uh, you're talking about to set it right. That was also with Dennis Hopper, and NBC didn't want to air it because it dealt with racism in the military. But Gene, always knowing how to play, uh, 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 play, play an audience, you know, got the NAACP involved to protest. The, and, and, and they ended up being forced to air it. But a lot of people feel that's also why they canceled the show, because and also Camp Pendleton and the military pulled their support after that. So but it did air and it's probably the best episode of the series. Wow. I see. I never knew that. <laughs> that's the one Dennis Hopper did, huh? Yeah. That's the one Dennis Hopper and, and yeah, Nichelle and, and, and Don. And of course, Nichelle was a, a triple threat. Not only was she a great actress, she was a singer and she was stunningly beautiful. So a real a, a real discovery, both for um, show business and for Gene. So uh, it's a, a wonderful thing. Um, so when Lieutenant gets canceled after one season, do you think that's it? I'm done with casting. I'm finished. Or uh, are you actively looking for other work? And, and when did that come about? Well, MGM didn't offer me another job. Uh, so if I may, I'm making half of this up. Is I didn't, re I don't remember returning to the, uh, I did not return to casting extras. Somebody had taken over there. But I returned to assisting Don, I would imagine, Don McElwain who had Mr. Novak in the 11th hour. And uh, I don't know if he had Dr. Kildare or not, uh, but he had about three series that he, oh, no, what was that one um, cop show? Yeah, anyway, Benedict, no, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, anyway, I just went back to assisting him, but the agents in the town were all over me. And they were introducing me to everywhere in town. And I got, I started getting calls uh, in, the, in the most, uh, you know, from different uh, places. Um, Jerry Henshaw and, um, well, the other guy, Jerry Henshaw from the Universal called me and took me to lunch to offer me a job at Universal as a casting director based on the agents spreading my fame <laughs> right because right. this is a guy who's discovering new talent who's interested who's not just going casting the usual yeah, suspects. I was doing as yeah. a, when I, the agents were saying hey, joe you should be casting you know I, I didn't give a damn about casting now how uh, much how much interaction did you have around town with other casting agents because uh you know during that time in the you know mid to mid to late 60s there was uh, almost a, a a whole community of really good actors who had been brought in for TV because TV could handle it at that point. You know, I mean, you had Ethel Winant over at CBS who uh, did all the all their casting and, and uh, did all the Twilight Zone, where we see a lot of the actors that would appear, you know, a few years later in these major productions. Yeah, Lynn Stalmaster, there are a yeah. bunch of... Uh, so well, uh, well... I'll tell you, um, well, number one, uh, one of the people that called was Ethel Wyatt yeah. <laughs> that you just mentioned for CBS. So I kind of had two job offers. One was CBS uh, for Rawhide and Gunsmoke and uh, Gilligan's Island and Bailey's of Balboa from Ethel Wyatt. Um, 
well, I won't say just Ethel Wynett, was also Jim Lister, who was my immediate boss. Hmm. And he used to be in that partnership with Stallmaster when it was Stallmaster Lister. Right. Uh, but I had the opportunity to either go with Universal, which everybody said, Joe, don't, it's a terrible place, <laughs> or CBS. Right. <laughs> because in Universal, they put their casting directors in a cellar underneath the Bank of America. <laughs> There's a reason they called it the factory. It was. So I took the C I took the CBS job uh, and became very close to Ethel Wynett. But in terms of the first question, did I have uh, how to uh, discussions or, or involvement with other casting directors because we were all bringing in all these new people? Yeah. Uh, no. Casting people are very weird. They don't talk to each other, nor do they share their ideas. We had we formed we we, we formed CSA. Um, at least Mike Fenton formed it, and you know, and I was one of the original guys they include in the founders list. And we casting have, society of America. Right? Yeah, yeah. And we and we we'd have these meetings, and I'd suggest, well, let's share the new people that you we see. And so they had what they called every meeting of Joe D'Augusta 15 minute uh, disclosure, you know. <laughs> Nobody would share people. They didn't want to share their discoveries because they're keeping them for themselves. Yeah. The very weird group casting directors. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it may be a weird group, but it's it's amongst other weird groups in the in the uh, show. Well, I, I you know, maybe other casting directors traded ideas and all that, but I, I I didn't think to do it, and I didn't, and then I didn't. Even when I ended up working at Universal in the basement, and we, we were all in the, there were about six of us, I guess, in the same area, we didn't share ideas. We just did our little thing in our shop, and then we went to our, our you know, an answer to our producers and uh, uh, didn't share. That was my impression. Now they might have shared, but nobody's right. Nobody. <laughs> my experience is no. <laughs> did 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 you end up at on on the Desilu shows uh, through uh, Lucy and C at CBS because you were uh, working for CBS and getting involved with some of the the Lucy shows over there? How how did you make the transition that you ended up doing both Mission Impossible and Star Trek, which were not CBS? Well, in the case of Star Trek, not a CBS show. I wasn't at CBS. I was at Fox. Ah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I, I was doing, I was working, I did Erwin Irwin, uh, Winkler shows. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to go back, just to give you the, the quick long shot, long story is uh, Herb Solo at, um, no, wait a minute, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, no, I, I, I was working for Bruce Geller. Ah, okay. Bernie Kowalski on a series called Rawhide. Sure. And uh, they wouldn't and and they wouldn't talk to Jim Lister, my boss, because he was a little bit of an ass. So they talked to me, only talked to me, and I was still in my beginning stages of trying to figure out what the job was all about. But uh, we all got along well, and we drank together. As come, you know, at the, at the end of the day, each day, and had fun with each other. And Bruce, Bruce and Bernie made casting fun instead of a chore. Uh, 
Uh, I don't know why I added that. Um, no, no, that's interesting. And how would you explain that? How, how, how you know, as opposed to where you're in a room just casting people and, and sending lists, you say Bruce Geller made casting fun. Is it, is it uh, because he was more interested in what you were doing, more invested? He, he's in the room for the auditions. Again, there's no self-tape back in 1962. You know, well, people are... Well, he had one rule. Nobody laughs at a suggestion. Hmm. And which is really, you know... You make certain suggestions and people go, come on, give me a break, you know, kind of thing. Nobody laughed, period. Um, the, um, to give you an illustration of the fun of it was, the fun that it was, uh, can't remember the director's name, I can see his face, um, uh, Stuart, something or other. Uh, I had just watched the James Bond movie on the weekend or something. And I wrote down the name of uh, Pedro Armendaris, I think his name. Mm, right. Yep, from, from Russia with Love. Great actor, you know? And we needed a guy like that. So I had him on my list and I was pushing him. And they all, Bruce Geller, Bernie Kowalski and Stuart, whatever his name was, said, yeah, dig him up, sounds good. He had died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say when you said dig him up, I'm thinking, yeah, literally, because of course he died making that movie of cancer. I didn't and sadly he shot himself before he died. Yeah, and I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I so I of course ran down and called the agent and said, you know, Pedro Martinez said, Joe, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> I was Spectre got him. The, I was the butt of the joke. <laughs> But no one laughs at you, Joe. <laughs> there, you <laughs> there you go. So, uh, you know, we did get around to, uh, yeah, the uh, short story is I, I got, I got the, uh, I got, I, I got the lieutenant because a guy got sick. Uh, when it ended, I had developed a reputation, and the agents were spreading the word about me and I got two offers uh, and it ended up uh, one from Universal and one from CBS and I went to CBS and then from when when um, uh, the rawhide uh, ended I can't remember why oh I didn't want to I didn't want yeah while I was doing rawhide with Bruce and Bruce and and, and, and Bruce uh, Geller and and um, and Bertie Kowalski, we kind of became friends because we were drinking at night together. And, you know, uh, and I told him how I hated working for this guy, Jim Lister, because he was such a pain in the ass. Right. And uh, um, um, they had a friend at Fox that was the head of casting, um, Cliff Gould. And they said, well, we'll give him a call, see if he's interested. And uh, Cliff called me up. Uh, he had an opening with Irwin Allen's show and uh, hired me away from CBS. Okay, boom, boom, boom. So tell, us, <laughs> tell us, because, you know, Bruce Geller, unfortunately, is kind of like Gene Kuhn in the sense that he died young, you know, uh, and, and so people, he didn't, it's not like now where everybody is interested in these showrunners Bruce Geller, unfortunately, you know, flew his plane into a mountain back in the 70s. And what, so I'd love to know your impressions 
of just Bruce as a person, something you could tell us that you, we wouldn't know from just reading the history of Mission Impossible, like, you know, because you knew him well and he was a friend and a drinking buddy. Um, so I'd love your perspective on Bruce Geller, because, again, it's, it's just someone who didn't get to, you know, live a long life like Gene Kuhn, who we can only hear secondhand through the people that knew them. Well, uh, Bruce Geller was elegant. Mm. He didn't have the rough edges of Gene Roddenberry, but he had the same temperament in that you could never shake him. He can handle everything. And Bruce was involved in everything where Gene was not as involved in everything. He was involved at the top, uh, you know, a lot, uh, spreading uh, uh, and delegating. Yeah, sure. Delegating. Less hands-on. Yeah. Yeah. Less hands-on. There you go. He delegated. But similar in their calm manner. I mean, you couldn't fuck up with, with Bruce. He would always stand behind you and straighten it out. Whatever, whatever the situation. Um, I'm trying to come up with something more defining. I know he, he always had a glass of water at his desk, but it's a little tiny bit of booze. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Mad Men era. I mean, you know, we watch Mad Men and we see the 60s we never lived in, but it's like, you guys were living that. You were living Don, the Don Draper lifestyle back then. You, everybody had a bar in their office and, you know, your workplace. You didn't want to go home to the family. You guys were enjoying making, doing television and making movies and, you know, late nights. And it, it was a pretty extraordinary time. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was. I mean, it was both. I mean, oh, what can I tell you? What can I say? I didn't get around to tell you how I got to Desilu. You 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 mentioned uh, Herb Solo. Well, let me let me go back. Let me back up. It wasn't Herb Solo. Okay. Uh, I, did, I was I was working as I said. I'm, I'm working at Fox for Irwin Allen. Right. Uh, and how was that? What was your impression of Irwin? How was that experience? Obviously, another big. Uh, TV and later feature film producer personality. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get into that, and then we'll go back to the other. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I, I know we're throwing it fast. We got to check you guys, do, you guys do edit this, right? Erwin <laughs> <laughs> was the emperor. Yeah. We called Erwin the emperor. This is a good story. Um. And uh, he had voyage to the bottom of the sea. He had a pilot called Time Tunnel, and uh, he had a show called uh, Lost in Space. He had more shows on the lot than any producer in town. Yeah. And he was developing two movies. And um, the way it worked, I would work with the associate producer and the director of each show, and they would report to Irwin, there was kind of, I was left out of, you know, they did the reporting to Irwin. Uh, and Irwin would be involved in certain interviews and one that kind of depicts his character was, 
he had this long conference table and he would sit on the one end and the actor that I brought in would sit on the other end and read and he would just stare at him with his steel eyes. Oh my God. And then the actor would end and he says, he's got funny eyebrows. <laughs> oh my things goodness. like that it was physical things he was judging okay so that's kind of how it went uh one day he saw me uh, see bruce i mean uh gould um, uh, cliff gould gave me a movie called stagecoach a remake sure. and on a lot i ran into uh, i ran into erwin and i had a stagecoach script and he says, what is that? I said, oh, I'm casting a movie. You're casting a movie? <laughs> I get a call from uh, Cliff saying, Irwin wants to meet with you and I. And on this long uh, conference table, he put Cliff at one end. He sat at the other end. He put me in the middle and these two, the associate producer and one of the regular directors on the end, other end, these uh, two uh, yes men, if you will. Right. Oh, but, you know, on the way over to Irwin's office, he says, what's this all about? And I said, I don't know. But there we were set up in what I call, or what, what was literally a kangaroo court <laughs> against me. Right. So Irwin started with, he turned to Harry, 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 I don't know, the director, and the associate Tell us about how Joe has been, you know, Joe's performance. And they started coming up with, well, he, he sometimes he's not prepared, sometimes he's late, blah, 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 and then boom, 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 boom. Well, me, I started fuming. I came in at seven in the morning. I didn't leave until 11 at night and watching dailies with Erwin uh, and to go over the suggestions or the, the, the final suggestions uh, in between his calls to his stockbroker. Anyway, I knew I'd put my, I, I, I worked my ass off. And by this time I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And these two kiss asses <laughs> <laughs> were doing his bidding by degrading my work so that Irwin could tell Cliff, Joe is, should be taken off of that movie mm. and just work exclusively for us. Anyway, somewhere along the line, I, at the age of somewhere around 26, 27 years old, and I didn't give a shit about casting, <laughs> they, I took that table and I pushed it, <laughs> knocking those guys backwards. And I got up. And I put my finger, I mean, I, oh, no, what I did, I remember, I went to the window just seething, and Irwin said something, and I turned, and I put my finger in his, in his face, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't call him an actual son of a bitch, I didn't call him a bastard, I didn't say nothing, but I let the words of hate come out, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I, I was shaking. This guy was the most important producer, maybe, in television. <laughs> because he had um, a number of shows and I knew that was it. I was done. So I walked out and as I passed Cliff, I, Cliff, I said, I'm sorry, Cliff. 
And I went back to my office. I'm still shaking. And I just could don't, no calls, nothing to my secretary. Uh, got into the office and um, waited. And I got the call from Cliff. And I said, and I went into Cliff. And by this time, I'd calmed down a little bit, you know, but it's still going on inside. And I said, just fire me, Cliff, just fire me. And he said, uh, you sure can get mad. And then he said, you think you can work with Erwin? I said, why, what are you talking about? He won't have anybody else. <laughs> I said, what about the movie? He says, you keep the movie. And from that point on, Erwin didn't listen to his director or producer, associate producer. He turned to me and said, what do you think, Joe? Now, when I went to Desi Lu, before I went to Desi Lu, I said, I'm leaving because I accepted a job at Desi Lu. And uh, he, he said, you know, why don't you just please, he put the call into Owen McLean, who, had a, who was number two man at the studio, and says, talk to Joe. And, her, and Owen McLean said, every time I get someone good, they leave. And uh, I said, well, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, but I accepted the job. And I went to Erwin and says, I am leaving. And Erwin said, they didn't offer you $800 a week, did he? And he said, no, but I wouldn't make any difference. I'm still leaving. And uh, when I was at Desilu, when it was about the, and I was in the middle of all my Desilu business, he sold his two movies and he called me up and said, I have three television shows on the air and I'm doing two movies and I want you to come back. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased for you, Erwin, but I'm staying. <laughs> what, a, it's a, what a great story and what, what, a, what an amazing moment of claiming respect for yourself. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> there's been a lot uh, in the media lately about, you know, people with toxic personalities and you know it's a part of our business it's always been a part of business it always will be part of the business and i think if anything you know you see an example here of you standing up to the bully and punching him in the nose and he respects you for it well and he wanted to figuratively he wanted to to own you you know he didn't want you doing a feature he certainly didn't want you doing a feature before he got to do a feature and uh and you stood up for yourself and it's and, and earned his respect. And it's such a great story. Um, it was a great moment. It was a great period. I mean, he turned, I turned out to have such great respect for him because of that, you know? Yeah. 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 Right. That, that, he, he, yeah. That's, it's fantastic. So now you're, you're at Desilu. And before we get to uh, a little show called Star Trek. One more caveat. Oh, under that go ahead. Uh, when I, when I went back after, Cliff said he wouldn't work for anybody. He invited me to the office and he had all these big pictures of monsters. And he said, Joe, I want to introduce you to our new cast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I want to, I want to, before we get to Star Trek, I do want to talk about Mission Impossible because sometimes that's get, it gets lost in the shadow of Star Trek. And I, I, I it, it, you know, it is such a, a amazing um, show that they pulled off at the, at the time, and obviously that's a franchise that has also stood the test of time. But you know, the first, it's so interesting. Obviously, that first year where you cast Stephen Hill, ultimately the thing everybody remembers is, is Peter Graves. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of 
the, the you know ca- the, casting the pilot and 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 obviously the revolving door at uh, a Mission Impossible and of course you know that that ultimately casting Peter Graves and 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 you know becoming this iconic character TV character. One, I didn't cast the pilot. Oh, okay. The pilot had been cast before I got there, and when we get into it, how I got to Desi Lou uh, from Fox, I'll explain that to you. But I. I didn't cast the pilot and I didn't cast the first pilot of Star Trek. Right. Because I didn't, I didn't cast the Jeffrey Hunter pilot. Right. All I knew, all I know about it was that Bruce, who really was a terrific showrunner and writer in his heart, he wanted to be a director and an actor. Mm. And he went to acting school with Martin Landau, who was the teacher, in order to, uh, well, just educate him on how to judge actors, I suppose. But also, uh, you know, he had this thing. He wanted to do it. Um, and he did direct, I think, I know he directed a movie, Corky, that I did mm. him at MGM. And I, he may have directed a, a Mission Impossible. I'm not sure. Um, I'm trying to think. What's the question again? It just lost. Well, I, I was asking about the the change from Stephen Hill at the end of the first season to Peter oh, Graves. Oh, oh, right. Well, uh, he was a I don't know Orthodox Jew, I guess uh, Stephen Hill, mm-hmm. and so he wouldn't work past six o'clock. Um, and 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 Bruce, of course, is Jewish, uh, and he needed certain underwear or something, cotton or something like that. Uh, couldn't, couldn't wear certain clothing. Hmm. All these concessions were being made uh, uh, and, and handled by Bruce. And I don't know what, but they were a pain in the ass because, you know, Bruce said, fuck it, I'm Jewish, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I don't need the special underwear and I, I can work after <laughs> six o'clock on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and but I don't know what tipped the moment. Uh, maybe it was maybe it was Stephen Hill himself, you know, who I guess became a pain in the ass. I was not part of all of that. Sure, I was just dealing with the actors that had to be cast on the next show, and wasn't involved in all the you know what was going on there. Just all of a sudden, boom, he was out. Uh, Peter Graves was in. Now I didn't bring Peter Graves in. I didn't suggest Peter Graves. I, that was all done by the network. The same way I didn't do Bill Shatner, uh, that was all done by the network. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did the re- the new pilot, which is where I got, I got involved. Right. Um, what else can I say? But it's it's interesting because uh, we we did an episode uh, uh, last year with a, a, uh, an infamous memo that Gene Roddenberry wrote to the stars of Star Trek during the second season. They were, you know, apparently causing some problems on the set and getting into uh, fights amongst each other and uh, posturing and all that sort of thing. And this was sort of Gene's moment to become the executive producer and set things straight. And among the things he said in the, uh, in the memo was that, well, apparently our sister show, uh, Mission Impossible, recast their lead 
and no one noticed. So keep this in mind as I tell you what you need to do. <laughs> I, I didn't know about that. That's great. But see, you got to understand, uh, he was a teddy bear, but he was also a cop. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a cop. So he knew how to keep things in line, you know. And yeah. that, that, I love the story because I've never heard it. And it was, it was, but it, I can see it. I can see Gene doing that. Yeah. There was another show years before that. I mean, years before that, that involved, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but involved, uh, you know, a leading man, a leading lady, and a monkey. Mm-hmm. And because there was problems on the, between the actors or pain in the ass things, the producer on that show went down and said, look, the only one of you three that's important is the monkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. So... So you, you, you mentioned, of course, coming on the Star Trek after the cage for the second pilot uh, where no man has gone before. Um, I know Gene has always said that he always wanted Gene Kelly, Gene Kelly, yeah. uh, D. Kelly from the uh, from the beginning uh, that, you know, and then John Hoyt was cast. He says it was Bob Butler's call. And then you cast Paul Fix as the doctor, um, you know, which. Uh, um, so wait a minute, I, wait a minute. Was, go a little slower. You're telling me things I don't know. Oh, okay. I, Gene would always say that he had D. Kelly in mind for the doctor from the beginning, but right. was talked out of it. Uh, you know, first when they cast John Hoyt on the first pilot, and when you guys cast Paul Fix on the on the second pilot. Is that is there any truth to that, or is that an apocryphal story? Did, did, no, did, no. Gene uh, Gene's introduction into the business was as a consulting police officer on a ZIV police, ZIV, Z-I-V yeah. police shows. Right. And he and, uh, and DeForest Kelly was always a kind of a B movie actor, yeah. television yeah. actor. And they developed a relationship and friendship on that show. If you really want to know how the casting went, uh, when I got involved is uh, Gene... Gene was responsible for DeForest Kelly because they had a friendship. Uh, Scotty, uh, and I keep saying this, and I hope it's true, but it's in my memory that's, that, um, his name? Jimmy Doohan. Jimmy Doohan was the boyfriend of Gene's secretary. Not, mm-hmm. not Dorothy Fontana. No. Right. A different secretary after Fontana got moved up to... Story editor, yeah. Of course, uh, Michelle came from me via the lieutenant. Right. Um, uh, Who else? Takai. I always thought Takai did a Takai did a lieutenant, but apparently not. But I uh, I was involved in that casting, and. who else were the regulars? Well, uh, Leonard had done a lieutenant. Oh, Leonard, Leonard, Leonard was he, my, Leonard was was me because of the work he did on the lieutenant. Because right. I cast him in the lieutenant. Right. But I didn't think he was right for for uh, Spock. Mm. Uh, I, I I I don't remember. I remember the conversation. I remember the situation. Because I wanted Mark Leonard 
mm-hmm. who I thought was a little more sophisticated. And I looked at I looked at Leonard Nimoy as a guy that played gangsters and bad guys. Sure. Um, and but according to Dorothy Fontana, when we were on a panel together, she said that when he showed her the Star Trek Star Trek script. Uh, she said, well, what are you going to do? What's in your mind? What do you have in mind for Spock? Which was, you know, the, the weird character. And he, he pushed the picture of Leonard across to her. Yeah. So. Now, the other story is that Majel had suggested Leonard uh, based uh, on them working together. Who knows, you know, what is real, what is fantasy, what is yeah. retroactive. Uh, but, uh, that, that one I don't believe unless now wait a minute now we could have been in pillow talk <laughs> she certainly had influence Gene <laughs> uh, was familiar with him because of uh, the lieutenant and uh, she might have been familiar with him because she worked with him so it could have been uh, yeah he's the, you know certainly plausible you know you, there's always, like in the case of Walter Koenig, which, you know, I, I did a movie as an actor with Walter years before that mm. called Strange Lovers. <laughs> All about, <laughs> a trilogy about, uh, let's see, I played a homosexual that was trying to go straight, but couldn't. <laughs> he... Uh, Walter played a homosexual that was straight, but went to prison and became. <laughs> and the third story was a lesbian story. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> Walter and I had kind of become friends. And when they did this, uh, when they did, when they wanted, uh, Gene wanted someone to resent, you know, like Davy and the monkeys. Yeah. yeah. Davy Jones. Yeah. And, uh, uh, there was a there was a director I I had worked I had, I had worked with uh, Walter in that movie, and I had worked with him in a in the casting of uh, Mr. Novak, hmm. where he played a Russian student. And the director, I think, of the particular episode, had also worked with Walter mm-hmm. in something. Uh, so. Uh, we all took credit for hiring Walter. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you oh. know who... I mean, obviously the principal cast has gone on to become these iconic characters, but it's worth noting that on the weekly basis, on the, the guest cast, you know, we, we spoke to um, a couple of months ago, Andrea Kindred, Gene Kuhn's assistant. And one of the things that she was so complimentary of was how many of the roles were cast with African-Americans, women at a time when these roles would have never been cast. I mean, she singled out Percy Rodriguez in Court Martial, you know, as Kirk's superior and 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 that it was somewhat controversial that you would have, you know, a, a black man, you know, as basically Kirk's, you know, boss in the mid 60s and, and how great the casting was. And, you know, whether it's William Marshall in the ultimate uh, computer. And it's true. I mean, when people talk about Star Trek being ahead of its time, you know, they always talk about, of course, Michelle and George. But, you know, that was true all th- all three years. I mean, was that something that you really were thinking about at the time or? It was all Gene. 
Jane demanded that before diversity became a word that was used throughout the business, Jean was all about diversity. Yeah. And about every, and if you, you know, and you guys know this probably better than I do because I've forgotten about it, but every show was about something current going on. Right. Whether it was the Vietnam War or whether it was the, 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 the feminine movement of burning bras or, you know, all of this stuff. And he worked everything current into his shows you know, with all these wonderful uh, 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 writers that he was hiring uh, that were uh, into science fiction, but this was the only place they could, uh, you know, really uh, uh, spread their... Um, they could tell the stories. Puzzle. They could tell the stories that they wanted to tell while yes. couching it in family-friendly and network-friendly sci-fi that doesn't hurt anybody. So yeah, you're right. There was there was there was Star Trek, and there was All in the Family. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> well, you you had mentioned you know really liking Mark Leonard for the role of Spock. Now, at the end of the first season, when it looked like Leonard Nimoy was going to leave the show uh, over um, failed contract negotiations, can you tell us about you know casting the role of a replacement Vulcan? And how challenging that must have been. That's where it must have been that I was trying to push Leonard. Mm. I mean, mm. push Mark Leonard, yes. Mark Leonard, because that's that's probably where my story that I just gave you a minute ago. Mm. Because if it makes sense, if Bruce, if if uh, Gene wanted uh, Nimoy from the outset, and he had him in the first pilot, right? Then it's then my recollection had to be at this time when they were going to mm -hmm. replace Leonard. Right. When right. they were threatening I mean, to replace I mean, Leonard. Replace, uh, yeah. Leonard. Yeah. And I, I was pushing uh, Mark Leonard, who I thought was more right for it anyway. Right. <laughs> he, he, he had all this dignity, you know, but and it, you know, it, it, I, uh, Nimoy was fantastic. He, I, I always say to people, he created that character. It was not on the page. I don't think they had the raised eyebrow on the page. And I yeah. don't think they had the little salute on the page. Right. I, and I would, he was, he really, you know, as a guy that didn't have a lot to say, he really created that observing alien. Mm -hmm. He was as, always present, you know? I don't know. He was, he was marvelous when you go back to it. As, as Leonard talked about in a couple interviews, he does give a lot of credit to Joe Sargent, who directed the first regular series episode, uh, for giving him a little guidance along those lines oh, of, uh, of, you know, I, I think uh, I think Leonard had a line uh, like, uh, you know, maybe it, maybe it was actually fascinating. And he and he read it, you know, like he was fascinated. But Sargent came in and said, try to try to keep it more inside. And try to try to you know don't be excited about it, but just fascinating, you know. Just say it matter of fact. And uh, Leonard himself said this was the key to everything, and it's really amazing to to hear how that sort of guidance helped him mold this persona that became so famous. Well, Joe Sargent was major, you know, one of the great real directors who wasn't a cop he wasn't a traffic cop 
Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they, had, yeah. they had a pretty good group of directors. Uh, oh, I know who, the, excuse me, Joe Pevney's the guy that kept saying he brought Walter onto the show. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I brought him on. <laughs> because you look at Joe Sargent. And, you know, Joe Sargent, like, did pay, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. So he, he went on to do some great work, you know, after Star Trek. And like, like you said, a lot of these guys either went on to do more TV or do uh, Disney movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Him and Bob Butler were really actor-directors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there was another guy named John something or other, very, you know, kind of English and uh, uh, sophisticated, who we did one, the empath, right? John Airman, or, or was that? Am I am I wrong, John? Because it was, you know, obviously Ralph Sineski, who was terrific, but was it John Airman? He only did one, um, which I think was the empath. But uh, but anyway, go 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 I on. I don't know the wrong. name Airman. It doesn't I don't, I don't it doesn't ring a bell. But he had that kind of image of uh, of a movie director, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. with a khaki coat on the right. belt and all that business anyway uh this is just a sideline thing and i wasn't there but uh apparently bill came in he didn't have his lines down and so the director this particular director shut down the whole production we'll just all go to lunch until mr chatner learns his lines <laughs> <laughs> And Bill scurried back to his dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a little side thing. Um, funny. Well, I assume Gary Lockwood was an e- a layup because you you guys loved him already from the Lieutenant. So when you cast Gary Lockwood, uh, that that came from there, I assume. Well, uh, I assume that uh, Gene wrote it for him because mm-hmm. Gary Lockwood was. He was indebted to Gary Lockwood uh, for doing his first show. Yeah, sure. You no, know, uh, so I'm sure he just wrote it for him. Uh, but you would be interested, I think, in uh, how I got to Desilu. Absolutely, absolutely. I was working at Fox with Erwin, uh, right? And Gene called me and said I sold the show. Now, apparently, this was the second show, you know, this is regarding the second pilot, which I didn't know. And uh, I said, Gene, I got a job. He said, (laughs) look, you just give us the names. We'll bring them in. We'll interview them. And we'll have business affairs make the deal, the deals. So I said, okay. So on on the side, I would, you know, Send Gene lists and then we talk uh, regarding reactions. So by telephone and um, fax, uh, I cast the second pilot <laughs> uh, for no for nothing as a favor. Right. And Gene um, sent after the fact. Gene sent me a check for seven hundred fifty bucks, which was wow. That's so ungene like. Yeah. That's very. <laughs> <laughs> No, I that's, didn't ask for it. He sent it. It was a lot of money, you know. Yeah, I had, that's I had a wife and a kid in a new house. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> awesome. Two kids at that time. Just uh, Did, just tell just tell me what to say, Joe. 
<laughs> just, just tell me what to say, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they both sold. I mean, Mission yeah. Impossible sold. Uh, I worked with Bruce on that. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek sold. Of course, Gene Roddenberry. Uh, Brady Bunch sold. And I had worked with, uh, with Sherwood Schwartz on Bailey's of Balboa right. and Gilligan's Island, you know, sure. when they were hiring, you know, guest stars in Gilligan's Island. Yeah. So there were three producers I worked with, but Gene, it was Gene's bright idea to go to Herb Solo and say, we ought to have a casting department and Joe D'Augusta ought to run it. Mm. And Gene Solo didn't know me. Yeah. So he said, well, I'll have to get the approval of the other producers. He went to Bruce and Bruce said, I don't know anyone else that would be better. Then he went to Sherwood Short and said, yeah, he'd be great. <laughs> just wow. serendipity you know I knew all three. well you know it's the it's it's the whole you know gene was smart circle the wagons and and you know bring in your friends and bring in your allies because yeah. uh everyone else is out to get you <laughs> no that's that that's a great that's a great story um did you and you kind of discovered sally kellerman this was one of her early early roles as well well what i didn't mention before we get to sally is the one producer who didn't know me was Lucy. Oh. <laughs> when this is over for this little book I'm writing, mm-hmm. I'm going to send you my story on Lucy. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> I had to be interviewed by Lucy. And uh, I wasn't interviewed by her. I was interviewed by her new husband, Gary Morton. Right. Desi Arnaz was gone by this time. Right, yeah. And I was wondering, what was this fucking second-rate comedian doing interviewing me? (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't a director. He wasn't an actor. You know, he didn't know anything. He wasn't, didn't know how to run a studio. I realized later why he was so important. Because Lucy ran the show, and it was very intense. And And as it got too intense... He'd come down the set, put her in his arms and pat her ass and calm her down. And that was <laughs> that was a great contribution. These are important skills to be sure. <laughs> Obviously, it was a really tough time for her when she had to sell the studio and then Paramount ended up acquiring Desilu. For you, as someone working there, did you feel the change from Desilu to Paramount? Was it seamless or did you, was it something that you really felt, you know, on the show as well, that, you know, that this, this changing of the guard? Well, uh, you know, we all, we all know that casting directors have egos, right? Um, like everyone else in this business. <laughs> Bob Evans, ran, you know, was now the, you know, the top guy because he, he was the CEO or whatever his title sure. like, of Paramount. And um, he brought his casting director, a, a pretty tough casting director, and whom I knew, but named Joyce Selznick. And uh, she called me up and said, you will send me all of your lists before you cast anybody. And I said, oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I called Herb and I mentioned she wants, 
she wants me to work for her and I don't, I'm not going to work for her. Yeah. So a meeting was called with Herb Solo, Bob Evans, Joyce Selznick and me. We waltzed over to the Evans office and I, you know, the meeting went on and I guess everybody was civil about it. And Herb stood behind me and said, and behind himself, yeah. that we are a separate unit. Right. We are okay. We don't need interference. And that included you, Bob Evans, who wasn't interested in television anyway. Right. Yeah. And he wasn't, and Joyce, who was interested in power, was right. put on the back burner and leave Joe alone. <laughs> And all this without you use, using your pointing finger. <laughs> without using finger. <laughs> I want to ask you, when, when Gene sort of laughed after, that's a great story, by the way, but after Gene laughed after the first 13 episodes, you know, because he was completely burnt out, what was your impressions of Gene Kuhn? I know he didn't love actors the way Gene did, you know, and ultimately he bumped heads a little with Bill and Leonard. What were your impressions of, of Gene Kuhn? You know, I saw he was, a, he was, a, he was what, I don't know how you call it, a brick wall. Mm. You know, there was no communication. You just kind of, you, you did everything to do it. And you had no idea what he was thinking, whether he was going to prove it, whether it was going to be difficult, whether it was. A, uh, so what you did is you just put your nose to the grindstone, and did your job and uh, everything worked out. But there was no relationship. Mm. And with, with, with Bruce Geller and uh, Gene Rodberry, it was a party and her mm-hmm. soul. It right, was right. family. Yeah, yeah. We were all brothers and sisters and, you know, all of that stuff. And there was no sense of uh, superiority by any of them, including mm-hmm. including her, who was my best man at my wedding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when I went to MGM, you know, anyway, my second one. <laughs> What, what about the, um, the later, I mean, you know, John Meredith Lucas was also a director. Um, did you have a better relationship with him or was it more just sort of strictly business? John what? John Meredith Lucas. I think that's the director that told Bill that. Uh... Oh, that's who it was. <laughs> that, it might be, he always was very, you know, well-dressed and coiffed. And yeah, that's who it was. It was John Meredith Lucas who yeah. ran the show. But, you know, at the end of the second season, but was also a director. John, of course, it's John Meredith Lucas. Yeah. OK, um, I, <laughs> well, we... <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I was around when he was running the show. Oh, OK. So do, you left the I, you left the show. Um, well, Doug, the second I, season, Doug Clay. No, no, I stayed with the show till the end. OK. I think. Yeah, because John took over and then Fred Freiberger took over for the third season. Well, I did work with Fred Freiberger. Okay. So I'm a little confused. Uh, I, it's, a few, it's a few years ago, Joe. It's, uh... <laughs> I, remember, I remember I went from one office to another to another. I had three different offices while I was working that. But what had happened is Herb Solo left. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I don't... Did Herb Solo was he head of the was he running the show when uh, John Meredith Lucas uh, took over Star Trek? He I think he was still there, but he left shortly thereafter, if I recall, because okay. um, 
you know, and then by the third season, you have Fred Freiberger who was running it, which was a very different producer than Gene, obviously. But I think I worked with Fred Freiberger because who was, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't remember liking him. Yeah, not many people did, apparently. His daughter became head of CBS later, and I went to her for a job, and I didn't like her. um (laughs) when you were when you were involved in the show did you was it something like where you would look at dailies to kind of see how 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 people were doing like were you curious you know in sort of like some of these casting decisions how it was turning out like would you watch dailies to kind of see and get a a feeling for the show i always went to dailies Mm -hmm. just because i loved actors and i wanted to see how they did yeah because uh and also, uh, because I was casting um, the three shows, including Mannix. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and then, of course, there was uh, All in the Family. I mean, not All in the Family. Uh, right, Brady Bunch. And then there were some pilots that came on, uh, and I was working with uh, um, Marshall. Uh, uh, Gary Marshall? Gary Marshall. Mm-hmm. on uh, Barefoot in the Park. And anyway, I was spread pretty thin. Right. And Lucy did a movie and uh, with Henry Fonda. Uh, they ended up uh, dumping me and hiring uh, Lynn Stallmaster because they weren't getting enough attention from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, because it was mostly kids, I don't know if you know the story, but it, it was two families married and they just had multiple kids. And so I had my, my assistant hiring the kids, you know. Mm. And the director said, well, where's Joe D'Agosta? He's Gene Roddenberry. And were you involved in the potential hiring of Gene Hackman before Robert Reed for, uh, for Brady Bunch? Because that is one of my favorite Brady Bunch stories, that, that uh, Mike Brady was almost um, Gene Hackman but they didn't think he was good with the kids. All I remember. No, I don't remember that one. I didn't do the pilot. Oh, okay. Uh, but I was, I had seen Gene Hackman in the thing and I was pushing Gene Hackman for everything, but I, I think he lived in New York or something, or maybe he just wasn't coming in for interviews and I didn't have the right film on him, but nobody ever hired him. I kept pushing him, pushing him, but nobody would hire him. It's a shame. He, it's a shame. He didn't amount to much. <laughs> well, years later, years later, I, I, I was instrumental in casting him in a in a Nick Rogue movie uh, called Eureka. Ah. Oh yeah, I, I had to convince Gene. I didn't have to convince him, but he wanted to see uh, Nick's work, and I I showed him one of Nick's films, and uh, I sat and watched the film with him, and he and he. And he said, well, it looks like a very personal film. And I said, well, all of Nick's films are very personal. And I said, and he said, well, why should I work with this guy? And I said, well, this is just for me. And I'm a big fan of his, is that most films will last, you know, for the showing and then the re-showing. But but, uh, Nick Rogue's pictures last for 10 years. I guess he took that to heart, or maybe he didn't even remember I said it. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I always that was my pitch. <laughs> right. And I always found it interesting that you cast Leonard Nimoy on Mission Impossible, which was an interesting uh, choice after Star Trek was canceled. Well, I don't know that I cast him. He was part of the family, you know. Yeah. He was part mm-hmm. of the Desilu family. So, you know, when 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 uh, the replacement for who was he replacing? Uh, uh, Peter? Uh, no, uh, 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 Landau. Landau. Yeah. Landau. Oh, is he, he, he was the first replacement? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I think it was very natural because Desi Lou had a personal relationship with him. Sure. So I'm sure that was done by calling calling him up at home and forgetting, you know, over jumping past the agent, you know. Yeah. Hey, Leonard, yeah. you doing anything Monday? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure that's how that went, you know. Hmm. Now, obviously, the stories of... Um, you know, the production challenges on Star Trek are legendary. And of course, in a lot of cases, scripts would become very late and treatments that presents difficulties for you in casting. I would think obviously with the uh, drafts not being delivered until very late in the process. Do you remember being a particularly challenging show? Um, And also with the, obviously people wearing prosthetics and things like that and playing aliens, did that make it a more difficult show for you than maybe something that's more, you know, straight down the, well, the answer, ahead. yeah, the answer is probably yes. But you know, I was a, you know, I, I, I didn't develop, I didn't develop this talent, but I had the talent mm-hmm. to coordinate. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was, I was, I thought it was normal that casting directors handles three shows plus a movie plus this, you know, <laughs> and gets the scripts out, gets the wardrobe done, get you know all of this stuff, and I had a three-person office. Right. <laughs> just wow. me and the assistant and the secretary and this is without fax machines without uh, oh, fax you know all oh, you're doing everything by phone no we had fax machines oh okay i think your anyway, telex yeah maybe maybe we didn't anyway it's uh i was really good at that at, at making sure everything i got i was what you call a triple check guy mm-hmm. <laughs> I would triple check everything and all the time I got Joe, I did it. Never mind, just tell me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they don't if they don't tell you it can't be done, then you don't know it can't be done, so you get it done. <laughs> so answer of course, you know, even with you know half the script the limited script, I would work from what I was told and I would relay that and I'd relay it to the first the agents and then I'd relay it to the actor himself, you know. Right. There was a huge difference in the communication between people in the industry in those days than there are now, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, now they now it's all emails and they won't even answer you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one of my favorite stories, and again, uh, that, that's been told in the past about casting was how um, Gene wanted to cast Robert Ryan as uh, in the Doomsday Machine. And, uh, you know, Bill sort of pushed back on that a little bit and ended up being William Wyndham, who was great. Is that something you encountered a lot? And maybe can you uh, tell us a little more about what happened there? Well, we got a little spoiled on Star Trek because everybody wanted to do it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I don't remember the Robert Ryan story, but uh, there's a chance I brought up Robert Ryan. And why not? You know, you know? And uh, Gene bought it, and then this other thing that you're describing went on behind my back, you know. Right. Uh, I don't remember Bill ever 
having a word about uh, or anything to say about Castell. Mm-hmm. You know? Leonard said years later when he was directing uh, one of the movies, and I never saw any of the movies. Oh, <laughs> I've never seen any of the movies. <laughs> I'd had it with Star Trek. <laughs> and here I am 50 years later. <laughs> Still talking about it. <laughs> Not because of me, you. <laughs> um, I was getting all these, uh, you know, absurd um, suggestions, you know. Joan Collins was a movie star, basically, you know, or right. in movies anyway. And uh, I don't remember all the way down the line, but we got to thinking that anybody would want to do the show. So I'm assuming, and I don't remember it at all, is that <coughs> Robert Ryan was brought in, maybe even suggested by an agent. And um, I, I can't believe, yeah, maybe the other story is true. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe behind the scenes, uh, Bill would, you know, call the producer, you know, and make his complaints. Uh, but I, I never, I never experienced that. I, I never thought he had it. None of them ever had anything to do with the casting. None of the leads. I mean, and and look, the, the 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 episodic casting is so great. I mean, I think you know one of the things people don't talk about when they talk about the enduring appeal of the show. I mean, you you look at the people you put in the show. I mean, whether it's Alan or Donahue or Morgan Woodward or um, you know Jeff Corey. I mean, it's just. Everyone, it's so impeccably cast that you know there's a reality to a show which is inherently silly, you know, about a spaceship in the 23rd century cruising around the stars with funny foreheads and all that. And yet, Star Trek feels so grounded and so real, and it starts with the acting. I think. Well, I I couldn't have said it better, uh, but I had already developed this being a wannabe actor, you know. Uh, I had separated actors as either stock actors that you were uh, directors like a lot because you know exactly what they're going to do. And they're usually very professional and they go from job to job, to job, to job, but not particularly good actors. Right. Just reliable, reliable actors. Then they had the good actors and that was the second wing of the ones you, the, the group you just mentioned. The, when Morgan Freeman was in something, you believed he was that character. You, even if you were familiar with him, you knew he was doing great work within his limitations, you know? Right. And uh, so I had the category of stock actor and then a good actor. And then the brilliant actor, which very, there are very few of those. And that was kind of where my mind was. And then when we had, you know, aside from that was all the bad actors that were working actors. Right. And I just had to steer away from all the bad actors and only bring in the good actors. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't afford the brilliant actors. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew who the good actors were. And I knew I was going to have to put a few stock actors in. <laughs> it wasn't the formula that was developed. It just that I look back, I go, oh, yeah, my mind was, had separated all those kind of people. And that's, that's how I made my judgments, you know, or my, was, rec- or my recommendations. Let's put it that way. There were some that you, you like to use uh, again and again. I'm thinking particularly about William Campbell, who, uh, who uh, was majorly in two episodes as two completely different characters and was great in both of them, you know, 
Okay, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, Campbell was a favorite of Jim of, of Jeans. Mm. You know, I thought he was okay actor. I think he was you know great personally, but I he was he was indeed a favorite of Jeans. So I'm not surprised he did two episodes. <laughs> but <laughs> we weren't, you know. We looked at Star Trek as um, what do you what do you call it? Um, not an episodic show, but um, an anthology. Anthology. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we did the same thing with Mission Impossible. You know, they were right. all anthologies. So if an, if an actor appeared in uh, uh, a number one episode, it's okay that he appeared in number three episode because he's a different character. Right. You know, and almost almost like a repertory company. Yeah, yeah, and you get to know good actors. In fact, I tried to make a deal. I tried to. I introduced a, a thing that because uh, we were always fighting budgets. I had only six thousand dollars to hire twenty characters, <laughs> <laughs> and um, twenty five hundred of it went to the guest star. Uh, so I was always going to the production manager begging for money you know oh gosh where was i going with this um, just the the tendency to to go to some of the same actors again and oh, 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 uh, the I, repertory I, company feel yeah I, I i tried to get a I make a three-picture deal with these guys uh mm. so i got three series i got managers i got star trek and i got mission impossible and if you'll cut your price by 500 bucks i'll put you in all three of them i'll guarantee you all three shows right and uh, so I got them. So they got a guarantee of three shows, but they had to cut out, you know, they had to yeah, uh, work with you. Do each one with yeah. <laughs> the guarantee they work for less. Right. And it never worked. <laughs> <laughs> the actors said, no, I want my money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you ever have agents calling you where, you know, because obviously William Ware Tice's costumes are legendary. And the, 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 the joke is it's like, something you tried to throw on and missed uh you know they were super revealing and obviously you know i mean leslie parish is you know literally a work of art and who moans fred and I's, um where the agents are calling and saying what are you doing you know my my yeah I, you can't you know why what what do you have to do over there at star trek <laughs> what yeah uh, i don't know that, i don't think we had those troubles and if we did i don't know but it has but we loved Bill Tice because he really showed a lot of skin to the <laughs> Bill Tice was a customer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my favorite was Sherry Jackson. I had such a crush. Oh, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah. Her, whole, her whole side was all open. <laughs> yeah. The, she, she was gorgeous. The costume was gorgeous. And James Gregory is great in that episode, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, he's a good actor. Oh, no. He was in the, uh, he was in the different. Sorry. He, he was in Dagger of the Mind. Mind. I'm thinking of, uh, Roger Corby is dead. okay. Never mind. Right, but yeah, she's. We can all agree that Sherry <laughs> Jackson was pretty amazing. Yeah, what what wasn't shown on her was completely implied. It, it, it was sure in your mind. Yeah, <laughs> I, and and you managed to find work, gainful employment for your ex wife as well, so, which is always a always a good thing. Yeah, but I, I always try to explain to you guys that I. I, I asked Barbara, I asked her, I said, did I cast you in the first time or did Jean? She says, no, you gave me the opportunity. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. Because most of the time, well, 
Bruce Geller had a crush on Barbara. Mm -hmm. Gene Rodberry had a crush on Barbara. Bruce Geller, I mean, uh, Ernie Quas, everybody had a crush on Barbara. So when, when I would cast, whether it was for a Beretta or for a Star Trek or, I don't think she ever did a Mission Impossible. Uh, I would have other actresses there that I was pushing and Gene Rodberry said, well, what about Barbara? I said, well, I got these other three that maybe you should look at, you know, because I didn't want, I didn't like the nepotism thing. It was, that was a big deal with me. And I, but not only on my shows, but all the other shows, producers loved her, you know, and they would bring her on and she's, she's getting, she's, she's 82 now and she's still getting fan mail. And recently she, you know, cause she had these pictures that she signs for people. Sure. And she said, look, this is your, this was your wife. <laughs> and my son's look, I said, Dad, how could you dump her? <laughs> oh, goodness. You got it, Darren. Yeah, right. wait a minute. We're uh, standing by while Here you go. Augusta comes back. There we are. Oh, that's Barbara. <laughs> there we go. That's a great photo, too. She didn't need me to cast her. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for those at, at home who may not be familiar with what I, she was in Balance of Terror, Shore Leave, and I think also Turnabout Intruder. So she was on the show a couple of times. Always a welcome presence. Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, you, you should have gotten the commission on that one. Um, it wasn't me. It was Gene. <laughs> yeah, it was it. It was it. yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I know you get this question a lot, but I, I got to ask you, um, you know, here we are 55 years after the show aired, still talking about this. Uh, you know, clearly you never had an inkling that this show would endure the way it has. But are you surprised it's this versus something else you worked on? Are you surprised it's Star Trek that stood the test of time as opposed to, you know, maybe one of the other shows that, that you, 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 you cast over the years? I mean, is, are you somewhat incredulous over this whole thing? Well, let's see, I got, I have mixed feelings about it. I, the first was, I couldn't believe we were canceled. Right. Because it was such a popular show in town in terms of people wanting to be a part of it. Right. I personally, I guess I kind of had it, you know, with uh, Star Trek and I wanted to get into you know, more dramatic, uh, current dramatic shows uh, right. mm -hmm. uh, that were being done in that, uh, as time, uh, you know, uh, uh, the things that Ilya Kazan was doing and uh, sure. um, uh, I'm trying to think of all those marvelous directors in the 60s and the 70s that were coming out doing movies. And I wanted to be in their kind of movies rather than Star Trek, and not that Star Trek was, it just got to be too familiar to me. So, sure. but I had no, no dream that it would live on. Uh, in fact, as I think when the movies started coming up and no, nobody ever approached me to, to do a movie, but only the closest I got was when Leonard was directing a movie. And by that time I was trying to get a movie of my own made 
he said, God, why did you quit casting? You were so good at it. Mm. But I was grabbing casting jobs at the time, and he was asking me about Mike uh, met Mike Fenton. Right. And I was going, well, fuck, ask me about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you must have had a good relationship with Bob Justman because you ended up working with him again on Then Came Bronson in the 70s. Well, when Herb Solo went to, uh, he left. Oh, MGM. He went from Desi Lou to be, you know, run to run MGM because MGM was a white elephant that was just sitting there dead. And Frank Rosenfeld, who was in direct contact with, um, uh, who was the guy? Who's the hotel magnet? Oh, um, uh, Charlie Bluehorn or, no, or no, 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 MGM? No. Kirk Kerkorian. Kirk Kerkorian. No, no. Frank Rosenberg said, Kirk, we have that movie. Because Kirk Kerkorian only wanted, the, only wanted the logo for his hotel. Right. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't give a damn about the movies. And Frank Rosenfeld, said, look, we got this, you know, just sitting there. He says, why don't we just, you know, put some life into it and just do movies as well. And he said, okay, go ahead. Uh, and that's when they hired Herb Solo, who had um, developed um, with uh, Penny Baker or Penny, Penny something or other. Then came Bronson right. and brought J- Justman over to produce it. And he also brought uh, Gene Roddenberry to Produce a movie called Pretty Maids All. Pretty Maids All in a Row, which somehow you managed to escape having to do. Thank God, right? I did it. it. Oh, you did Pretty Maids All in a Row. Yeah. Oh well, that's a whole other podcast, Bob. That's a whole other podcast. That must have that must have been a big couch. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the sadness was I. The sad part. Well, no, trying to do the right thing. I I never I never. Uh, I set up the meetings for the girls to undress. Uh, uh, I would I would only, I would set the meetings up with uh, Gene and um, Roger Vadim. Right. And, and I told them I said I don't want anybody else in the room. Right. Mm-hmm. Period. You know. And that was just a, a thing I set up. And because I've always been conscious of this casting couch thing that I didn't want to ever be you know uh, mm-hmm. have that you didn't, wanna, you didn't want to contribute to it you didn't want to be accused of it you didn't well, want I any part some, of it i knew some yeah. sleaze bag casting people that were did it as a, on a daily practice of course. and i you know i really wanted to strangle them because you know i was i had a i had a wife working in the business you know yeah. and, mm-hmm. and plus i loved the business as a legit business rather than uh you know a business to you know, where you spend the afternoon figuring out who, who you're going to get, you know, who's who yeah, good for you. That's, that's... Yeah, that was one of my big deals. So I wouldn't let anybody in a room, but those people, and even I didn't go into the room. Right. Mm-hmm. But there was one girl that we, it was late casting and she was not undressed. And I guess when she did undress, she had these flat boobs, fried eggs, they call them. <laughs> in those days <laughs> and i had to go to the set and fire her oh. and that, oh, that, that, was, that was devastating she's a little 21 year old girl and i had to walk her off the set while she was crying and oh, I, God. 
know, be nice, you know, anyway. But she dodged a bullet not being in Pretty Mates all in a row. So it ended up <laughs> having a happy ending. Um, I've got to ask you, I mean, Rock Hudson, what, I mean, was it because he was trying to play this more masculine role to sort of, I, what was what? How did he end up in this movie? I mean, hey, I, put a- in movie. <laughs> I put him in the movie. They offered it. They offered it for Charlie Bronson. They offered it to Dean Martin. They offered it to other people that were working. And the guy that was not working anymore or his career was fading was Rock Hudson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his agent brought him up to me, and I said, "You know, we could get Rock." And I went to Herb Solo, and I went to. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, I said, this is the best looking guy in the, in, in the town, in a business. Mm-hmm. And he's available and he'll do it. And with that, we just that with that explanation, we brought him in, they met him, and uh, he was hired. And Rock took me to lunch to thank me, invited me to a party at his house, which I went and I brought my wife with me. And here we had all these boys running around in G-strings, swimming pools in the backyard. And and Rock put us at a table and just left us. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) He brought his wife. (laughs) That's how naive I was. Oh, my goodness. So funny and of course you, you put Dewan in a small role in that as well and and Billy and Bill, and Bill Campbell too I mean and William Campbell were both in that I assume William Campbell was a gene thing was Dewan your idea or was it just like let's throw him a bone he needs to work no Dewan Dewan was part of the family you yeah know? sure yeah. I, I think Gene you know I don't think I don't I think both Gene and and Bruce were guys that you know were were loyal to the actors that they were friendly with sure of course and and you know and i had actors that i was friendly with but mm. you look for parts that you can squeeze them into right right you know yeah. uh, it isn't you know is because you're always look trying to look out for your friends you know sure and i, I have I, all this and each all directors have their list of actors that they want in their shows for two reasons they know what they're going to do but they're pals mm-hmm I just can't imagine when you read that script. It shows what, what good friends you were with Gene to do this picture. <laughs> or, or, or that you needed to work. I mean, I, I look, Quentin Tarantino said Pretty Made It All in a Row is one of his 10 favorite movies of all time. And, uh, you know, look, yeah, Quentin said that. And, uh, like, it just celebrated its 50th anniversary. And, and if you're, you're uh, a fan of Gene's, and you haven't seen the movie, you owe it to yourself to see Pretty Mates all in a row. Um, but it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's something. It's of its, it's time. It's something. Well, yeah, it it's of it. Not, you know, I, I, you know, it was kind of a, what do you call it, satire, wasn't it? Yeah. That's one way of putting it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you hire the boys because they're good sportsmen and you hire the girls because they're good legs. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they're, look, yeah, I mean, and the women in, pretty maids are gorgeous and i mean you know they're all in the one sheet you know it's 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 uh i mean it's just such an interesting choice of genes coming off of star trek it's you know obviously definitely um is not science fiction it's it's it definitely a different kind of picture isn't it though for him <laughs> <laughs> so you you stayed with mgm for a long time because of course you worked on a lot of 
big pictures for them over the years, including you know, Red Dawn and Poltergeist 2. I mean, a lot of big, you know, movies that have gone on to become big cult films. You know, what what was like uh, life like after Star Trek and, and some of the pictures and, that you did, you know, through the 70s and 80s? Well, Desi Lu and Star Trek Mission Impossible and Manics put me on the map. And uh, the MGM movies elevated my status. Right. Uh, because I was in, I was heading, I headed both motion pictures and television. Yeah. And uh, for the most part, I did have a, I did have a, a, a staff, you know, I think three casting directors and an assistant and secretaries and all that business. And they I assigned everybody a movie and a series. Mm. Uh because by that, because that's what I wanted as a casting director, and it took me a long time to get a movie. You know, in terms of it lifted my status because I, 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 I was talking to the top guys at William Morris and uh, CMA at that time, I believe it was. I don't think. Uh, no, no, I think. Uh, let's see, I'll back up. Yeah, the people I, Freddie, Freddie, Fred Silverman, the head of ABC at one point. He had a TV show and he said to me, you're the glue around here, you know, because <laughs> the regimes changed. Herb Solo was out and Jim uh, um, Aubrey was in. And then Jim Aubrey was out and Frank LeBonds was in. Right. And I don't, was there another one or is that it? And maybe those three. And I, I survived all three regimes. Right. And, um, <laughs> well, I want, I want to ask you, because you mentioned him a couple of times before we wrap up, but, you know, uh, you mentioned how instrumental. Bob, I'm having fun. <laughs> so are we. Well, we'll keep going. Yeah, we certainly are. <laughs> that you had mentioned, um, you know, a couple of times Herb Solo being instrumental uh, in, in, in certain aspects of your career. Um, he obviously passed away recently. So I, I want to mention, you know, if you could, just something about Herb. Uh, that you know you might want to mention or just uh, share with the audience. Uh, obviously, he's sort of an unsung hero in the whole Star Trek uh, phenomena. Uh, but more more than that, he was a friend of yours. He was somebody who hired you. Um, so, if, if there's anything you want to, you could tell us about, you know, Herb Solo. Herb Solo was responsible for saving Desi Lu, not Gene Roddenberry, mm-hmm. not Bruce Geller, not Swartz, him. He brought those three people together. Right. Herb Solo was open, always friendly, never raised his voice. He was the coolest boss you could ever want. When he took me over to MGM, CAA did exist. It would come into being. And uh, they wanted to be to run the show. Sure. They wanted to run all shows. And I developed, I, I had this one CA agent that was chasing me. And I said, and I just wouldn't, I said, just wait your place in line. You know? Yeah. I'll, I'll get to you. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he called Herb Solo or had his boss call one of those CA guys called Herb Solo. And said, CA is not going to work with Joe D'Augusta. Herb Solo said, then MGM will not work with CAA. 
There you are. Straight. There, there you go. It's a great That's story. I didn't feel that he was this uh, demagogue, whatever you that I, you know, you couldn't approach because he was your superior. I thought he was my friend. I asked him to be my best friend, friend, my my best man at a wedding, just because he was a friend. But we never drank together. We, you know, we maybe had one dinner together. Maybe I went to a dinner party at his house, but we were pals. We were we were peers inside the studio working right. together. Allies. I, I just respected him so much. And I went past all my friends and said, I want Herb Solo to be my best man. And he said yes. <laughs> That's great to hear. That's that's a that's a great story because I feel like uh, you know we haven't you know his passing didn't get a lot of attention, but he was such a significant figure in that era, and I'm so glad that you could share these personal stories about him that we really you know don't know. Well, he brought to life MGM. Remember, it was dead. Frank right. Frank, Frank Roosevelt said to to um, Kirk and right. yeah. it's just sitting there. And they hired him to bring it to life. Yeah. Then they hired Jim Aubrey to kill it. Yeah. Sell it off. Yeah. <laughs> For pieces. Yep. 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 No, it's, 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 uh, and we're still looking at that today. I mean, only today when we're recording, MGM just got sold to Amazon. But of course, the most famous MGM movies were long sold off to Warner Brothers. So, uh, and to Turner. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of sad when you look at the more stars than they had in heaven, MGM. I mean, it's such a, a, a pale shadow of what it once what it once was as a, as a super studio, but um, it really had its renaissance in in, in the seventies, and you know until you know the whole. But, well, uh, but I will say this: the movies that we did with Herb Solo mm-hmm. were not great movies. They were he was hiring a lot of his own friends from television mm. to do movies, right. Right. He wasn't going after the major guys. Right. He was keeping it a family thing. I don't know that it had anything to do with anything, but at least they were being produced things. And they were it, producing a number of them. It was the opposite of what United Artists was doing. Like United Artists was was finding, you know, great foreign directors, great indies. They were they were discovering people and obviously had a number of Oscar. MGM, yeah, was more programmers at the time. Um, I got to ask you, but when what, you look back at this career, is there an actor that you're surprised didn't make it because you thought they would be a huge star? And is there someone who's become big that you're kind of shocked that they uh, have become as successful as they have? Well, Harrison Ford was kind of a hung around as a universal contract player, but nobody took him that seriously until mm-hmm. George Lucas, you know, put him in the, the street movie and then yeah, started, American, yeah, American Graffiti. Yeah. American Graffiti and then Star Wars. And so I guess he was a surprise in, the, in that era. I, I didn't know him, but uh, I didn't expect anything from him. And I thought he was one of those stock actors. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who should have made it? Who should? I could probably give you a list of thinking about it. Um, I can't come up with it, but I know I, I can feel him right back here, him yeah. or her, you know, lurking. 
Maybe I'll send an email to you and say, ah, here's <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I, I, I thought you were going to say your acting career. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, you, 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 you went on to much more success as a casting director. And did it give you the satisfaction that you got as an actor? I mean, obviously having that experience proved to be instrumental, I would think, in, in being a casting director. I closed that book that we used to get. A, we had a little book we, with all the actress pictures in it that we sure. thumbed through to make our list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Closed my book a number of times and said, that's it, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And I finally developed a script and I had uh, a package. I had Burt Lancaster and I had uh, Don Johnson off of uh, Miami Vice when he, mm-hmm. when he was hot as a mm-hmm. package that I took to Cannes and to Mifed, uh, Italy, and to AFM here, and was always a phone call away from it getting made and never got it made. But I turned all my energies to that and, uh, um, and uh, put in all, and I had three different deals uh, that in Cannes I made a deal, and by the time we got back here, it fell apart. Yeah. I had a, uh, two other deals that were, you know, beginning to blow, beginning to happen, and then they just fizzled away. Um, because I had three different casts. I didn't have, I had Burt Lancaster and Don Johnson. Then I had uh, Anthony Quinn and Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini. And one of my, you know, uh, people I was dealing with to produce it, uh, I can't remember their name anyway, I was, I was in this guy's office and he said, well, rather than um, Isabella, what about um, Michelle Pfeiffer? And I said, if I had Michelle Pfeiffer, I would need you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... and then uh, I had it, I, 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 took the, I took the picture to England uh, and uh, this group and this woman, um, I can't remember the name of their company at the off, off the top of my head, but she said, well, Dennis Hopper is a good actor, but what about Paul Newman? And I said the similar thing to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's so funny because Dennis Hopper goes back to the beginning of your career and it just shows like these, these, these relationships in this business that you forge, you know, keep coming back throughout your whole career. Um, speaking of which, you're now writing your memoirs, looking back at an amazing career in show business. Can you tell us anything about that or where you are and something, you know, before uh, what your plans are with that? Well, you know, I just, I never thought of myself as a writer, even though I, you know, I, this particular script that I uh, wrote was really rewriting somebody else's script. Sure. Well, I ended up, you know, getting the whole thing and for me and the, He's gone and that script's mine, but I've got like 20 rewrites in my little library here. So right. uh, that's how insecure a writer I was. I would keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. So I didn't think of myself. I thought of myself as a, a writer. Uh, how, do you, how do you say it? Out of necessity. Well, out of necessity or in defense. Yeah, for, for lack of a better term. Right. Uh, Self-defense. <laughs> right. Because I didn't have any. Uh, I had to write because I couldn't afford writers. Uh, but 
the only thing I have never written is I re rewrote this script, you know, so many times. Um, and this woman, friend of mine uh, in the acting school invited me to join her in a writer's, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, school. Uh, what is it? It's eight week thing. Right. And I, it was, it was where you write a 600 word story. And I wrote about Linda Hunt, which you guys haven't asked me about. Mm. No, we haven't asked you about <laughs> Linda Hunt. And, uh, <laughs> what a great actress she is. Or, and then <laughs> I said, I, I, I told the story. Then our, our job was to tell, get up and tell the story after we had written it without referring to notes. And I told the story and I got such laughs. I went, wow. I got, I, I instantly fell in love with writing. So I started writing things. And the upshot of it is, is now I just did an interview with a woman uh, that's writing a st about Star Trek women. She was one of the Star Trek women. I said, I don't know you. I never saw your series. Uh, but she, we did one of these. And her publisher said, well, we should do a book about you. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> and another producer said we should do a documentary on you <laughs> that's and I, and I think it's all because i'm the last survivor of the people behind the camera <laughs> i don't yeah, i don't know if they're standing um, alive i mean when herb solo died i said well that next <laughs> but no i mean there is a whole generation of on that show that's no longer here to tell their stories that's that's for sure yeah, but they um, all wrote books. They all wrote books. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I didn't write a book. Some better than others. <laughs> uh, so in my story, and I'm going to send you two. Uh, one is my interview with Lucy, and one right. is my meeting with Orson Welles. Oh, really? Nice. Those are just the two fun ones to look at. And what I want is not just me in the business. I want... Me, episode 1500, 1500 word kind of short stories, mm -hmm. vignettes, mm -hmm. uh, these experiences, and um, intermingled with my life experiences, including sure. my, my cocaine period and all those things. Right. I just don't want to be, and, and this guy, he says, Joe, we don't do books like, because I sent him these two stories. He says, I love the stories, but we don't, we only do Star Trek books, or I guess he sells the Star Trek books. Mm -hmm. He says, I want to do this one. I already talked to my boss about it. So I might have a publisher, but he warned me, I can't give you, a, if you want a high up front or something, uh, we, we can maybe come up with something that's fair. But not big. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You won't be getting a huge advance. But what's amazing, Joe, is that you have such a great memory for all this stuff. I mean, what I find with a lot of the, you know, original cast is that they don't really remember, but they repeat the same stories they've been telling over and over again, you know, at the conventions, which ultimately, bear it's like a game of telephone, bears no relationship to the truth. Whereas, you know, you actually remember <laughs> these stories from you know, 50 years ago, which is an extraordinary resource. So I'm so excited about your book and, and, and reading, 
you know, all these stories. And like you said, beyond Star Trek, I mean, Orson Welles and all these legendary Lucille Ball, these legendary figures that you crossed paths with and worked for. Yeah, well, it's, it's exciting. And I, and it, you know, I would have traded it all for uh, an acting job, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Star Trek wouldn't have been half as good without you. So thank God for the rest of us. It didn't work out. Um, <laughs> We're so, well be in the good actor category, not the stock That's actor. That's right. <laughs> we're so glad you could spend this time with us today. This I, is great. We're so I appreciative. A, I need a phone number. I, you know, Mr. Beard. I don't know your name. What is it? Mr. Beard. Darren, <laughs> yes, I'm Mr. Beard. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your name? Darren Docterman. Darren, how do you spell Docterman? D-O-C-H-T-E-R-M-A-N. M-A-N. And I have um, the other guy. The other. You're, you're the other Mr. guy. I'm Mr. Beard. The other, the other Beard. <laughs> I can't remember Beard. I'm, I'm trying to think of the email. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Mark, 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 yeah. Do I owe you? Yeah. 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 That you, was the last, last time we met was uh, at the Cinematech when we were doing that 50th anniversary. It was Roger Lay and... DC was there and I think David and it was you and I forget who else was there because we were doing a bunch of um, and Nick Meyer was there. We did, did a whole weekend of uh, Star Trek for the 50th anniversary at the, at the Cinematheque. So that was where we, we met. And that's why I said to Darren, I said, you know, Joe has great stories. And the problem with the Cinematheque is they give you a 10 minute Q&A and you're done. I said, we need to spend some time chatting at length. And obviously we did. <laughs> was Bob Butler there? Bob Butler was there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that was great. That was a great time. That's when that's when I learned the story about Leonard Nimoy, because Dorothy remembered it better than I did. Or she remembered it differently than what I I remembered. You know? <laughs> and Bob Butler is another one of these guys who went on to do amazing work with like Moonlighting and Hill Street Blues and everything. And then all people want to talk to him about is Star Trek. And so I can't imagine how frustrating that might be at times because well, he really uh, is extraordinary guy, extraordinary guy. He was one of the actor directors, you know, he's one of the mm-hmm. very good actor directors. I hope he's still alive because he seems. He is. Like, oh, yep. good. He is. Uh, yeah. He was a little wieldy on his feet. Uh, right. So uh, what about phone numbers and uh, well, We'll, yeah. we'll give you all the information after we wrap this up. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're being filmed. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. we're, yeah we're, we're just going to, we'll close it off for the listeners so that, uh, so that we don't leave them hanging. I'll give you yeah. one caveat you haven't asked about. Go well, ahead. You asked about Linda Hunt. But with Bill Shatner, when he interviewed me for his book, uh, he fell in love with me because I told him that the truth about my feelings that he, not Leonard Nimoy, was the secret to Star Trek because he had these huge monologues explaining the devices that didn't exist. Yep. And um, so he had, he, he had, he, he was charged with all the, epi- uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, Exposition. 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 Right. Right. No, no. He was with all the exposition and still emerged as a, an icon. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir because as much as we appreciate and love Leonard's performance, 
Bill is what made that show work. And all you need to do is compare Jeffrey Hunter to Bill Shatner. And you realize that Bill was the key to making Star Trek work. We would not be talking about Star Trek 55 years later if Jeffrey Hunter had stayed with the show. Um, Bill is uh, charisma incarnate. He knew how to play it with conviction, but at the same time, make it operatic. Uh, Remarkable. You are good. <laughs> that was good. This is one of the stories that he's told over and over at conventions. So he's, <laughs> no, no. he's remembered this one. So no, 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 no. That's how I feel. That's that's obviously how I feel. I'm a big, always, big fan I, of bills. I, I would always say, yeah. All, all Leonard had to do was raise an eyebrow and say, "That's illogical," you know. And yeah. Everybody went, "Oh, isn't that wonderful?" <laughs> People loved him because he was the outsider. You know, and and, uh, you know, there's less love in a sense for somebody like Kirk, who has most of the answers and, you know, uh, women are falling all over themselves for, you know, so he's more to some who don't really look underneath the surface. He's like the jock, whereas Spock is like the thoughtful outsider. But, um, you know, obviously Shatner's Kirk was a huge role model for a lot of us growing up. And, uh, you know, I think the scientists and people, you know, there was there was Spock and for people, other people, you know, there were there was Kirk. And then but you hear like D talk about, oh, all these people that were inspired to become doctors or doing all the people who have become engineers. And, and Walter's always funny because he says Chekhov inspired no one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, anyway, well. This was a delight, Joe. This was this was this was, this was so this was well, so much more, fun. There's, there's more. Oh, Linda Hunt. <laughs> Are we doing Linda Hunt? Are you still we, doing? Of it? course, we yeah, have to course. do Linda Hunt. You you've teased it. Now you have to deliver. Okay, uh, that was my greatest accomplishment, um, even over and above Rock Hudson. And, mm. um, I got a call from Freddie Fields, the boss, and said, "You're going to get a call from Peter Ware." Uh, because the year of living dangerously, you're having, he's having trouble with casting. You know, a cat, a, a year of living, a, 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 a cast, an actor in, in in year of living dangerously. Right. Um, he had hired. It, it was it, what he needed was a Eurasian dwarf. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got the script and. I thought it was just going to be, you know, one of an ensemble player because he had, uh, um, who's, his, who's the lead? Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. And yeah. Sigourney Weaver. And Sigourney Weaver. Well, he didn't have Sigourney because we cast Sigourney later. But he had, he had Mel Gibson and uh, he, was, he, he was the, uh, the next, ne- the next uh, big thing. Uh, so I read the script and I saw, oh my God, it's the lead. So I called in, I told him, he said, I said, we're going to have to do a search. When I talked to Peter, I mean, yeah, to Peter, I said, we're going to have to do a search because I don't know who to, who to recommend. Right. And uh, he came to town and I brought in everybody that was either Asian or Eurasian or short. <laughs> and we went through LA and I prior to this I'd hired a New York casting director Pat McCorkle who did a lot of regional theater and stuff and I said you know bring in everybody you know 
uh, because we were getting nowhere. We put a few people on film, nothing. We went to New York. She had set up this whole battery of actors. Oh, before, but before we left for New York, cast an agent who walked into my office and slammed a picture on my desk and showed, said, Joe, you gotta meet Linda Hunt. Um, she's a great actress. And I, she had this kind of gnarly face, so she was rather masculine looking. And I put it on my desk. And when Peter came in, I, I said, yeah, I, sh- I showed him the picture. I said, what do you think? And he says, I like him. And I said, it's a woman. <laughs> it's a woman. He said, forget it. This is a man. I don't want to, I, I need a man. That's what the part is. So we get to New York. And uh, I had told Pat, I said, uh, do you, know Linda, do you know Linda Hunt? And she said, yeah, she's a great actress. She works at the, the Walter, uh, at the, at the uh, Walter Kerr? Uh, the Connecticut Theater. Uh, oh, okay. The, whatever, the, whatever it was. Uh, and I, so I said, we'll bring her in. So we're, we're there you're meeting the people, we're getting nowhere. Uh, and Linda's next. And I say, Peter, I brought Lyndon Hunt in and she's next. And he said, I will not see her. I do not want to be embarrassed. You brought her in, you dismissed her. Okay, so I go outside. Hi, Linda. Hello, Joe. (laughs) I said, isn't it ridiculous? My agent sends me in for everything short. I said, just stay right there. I walk in, I said, Peter, you're gonna meet her whether you like her or not. I pulled her into the office and she goes, hello, Peter, I know I know this is ridiculous, but I love your work and I want to meet you, blah, 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 blah. And I watched him, I watched all this magic going on between the two of them, bang, bang, bang. And after 10 minutes, he's pumping his fist and stomping his feet saying it's genius, it's sheer genius. And uh, from that point on, and I'll make it short, uh, we tested her. We just we spent a whole day taping her, showing her how to sit like a man, smoke like a man, walk like a man, put her on tape. He left, and I thought, shit, I don't even know if she can act. <laughs> and she only won the Academy Award, so I guess she could. But I, I, I she was in a play, uh, Kafka, uh, uh, whatever, and I went to see it. Just happened to she in play. She was great. So we flew back. We showed the test to the exec- the key executives at the studio. Peter said, "Do not mention she's a woman. Right. Just we we'll show them the test." After the test, they all said, "Wow, very interesting. Good. We like her." Peter then said, "It's a woman." And Freddie Fields goes, I knew something was there. Well, look, let's hire her. But anybody that mentions she's a woman, you're fired. We put a gag line, we put a gag line in her contract that she couldn't say she was a woman. Wow. Freddie and I are walking back. We run into David Jasmine, the second man, number two, second man of the number two man of the studio. And he says, How'd it go? And uh Freddie shows the pictures from the art department that had done some prosthetics on her. And Jasmine looks and says, wow, interesting guy. And I go, 
It's a woman. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Freddie turned to ice and he says, you're fired. You're fired. <laughs> I went down to my office shaking. Like, I'm done. And David Chesman calls me because I told my secretary, don't put any calls through. And I just, I said, and she said, David insists on putting being put through. I said, David, is this it? Am I done with the fuck of stupid fuck I am? You know, because <laughs> Freddie's the kind of guy when he says you're fired, you're fired. Right. And he said, Joe, just show up at the board meeting. Don't say anything. See what happens. <laughs> I, went to the board, I went to the board meeting. It didn't come up. She won the Academy Award, and Freddie gave me all the credit. Everybody we were saying, he says, it was him. He did it. He did it. <laughs> that is a great story. And what a great way to end this, this amazing conversation, Joe. I, I can't thank you enough for the time and the, the stories. And uh, this was just a delight. So thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate thank you. it. Thank you. It was fun. <laughs> wow. So much fun. What, what a great interview. What did we tell you? We promised you we'd deliver. <laughs> I, I hope you think we did because I, I, I sure enjoyed that. You know, it's, 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 we talked about, you know, look, we don't, we, we, we didn't set out to make money on this podcast. We don't set out to, to, to charge uh, subscription fees or advertising. We do it for the love of the game. In this case, the game is Star Trek. And this is one of those that remind me, you know, why we do the show. I mean, this is, uh, he was there when the, that original Sacred 79 were being made. <laughs> we, well, 78, he, he right. actually uh, wasn't on the cage. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's so great to have this connection with something that we, you know, that has become a part of our lives. Uh, but to hear his perspective on what was going on at the time and just hearing how matter of fact he treated it. It's, mm-hmm. it's really so much fun to get that perspective on things. Well, I love also how much fun they had doing it. You know, obviously it was super stressful and difficult, but, you know, he talks about, you know, how much fun it was to work with those guys and, and a big fan of Gene Roddenberry's. Yeah. And, you know, often when you're talking to somebody in their late 80s uh, about their career, particularly something that was very early in their career, they don't remember much beyond the sound bites. What, what was a joy with Joe is he remembered so many great stories. Yeah. And uh, I particularly, as you know, was taken uh, with the Irwin Allen story because a lot of people in this business are dealing with this, you know, uh, toxic personalities. And, you know, I'm not in any way condoning that kind of behavior. Uh, but what's wonderful is you see how he dealt with it. You need um, and, to con- you need to confront a bully, or you will always be bullied. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's a wonderful story with a very happy ending. Yep. Um, and uh, it was just great. It was just great. So we want to thank you for joining us for another episode of um, of the Trexperts. I also want to remind you that our uh, Kickstarter for the um, 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever is going on right now. So if you have the inclination. Um, check out Kickstarter. I hope you'll choose to support this documentary. I mean, I got to tell you, this is funny. During While we're talking to him, he's talking about the year of living dangerously. Wonderful story. Movie from 1982. So, of course, in the back of my head is like, 
we got to sit down with Joe D'Agusta to talk about his <laughs> Linda Hunt story, which we almost never got to. Yeah. So um, it just uh, uh, look, I, we want to preserve these stories. Uh, and that's part of what we do on Trexperts. And hopefully in 1982, go beyond just Star Trek to many of the other amazing movies that year. But uh, this was great. And I hope you'll also join us at Comic uh, Vegas uh, for the Star Trek uh, uh, 55-year mission tour. Darren and I will be doing the podcast live and uh, we'll be around all weekend to talk about the podcast and uh, promote uh, various sundry things we're involved with. And Scott Mance is going to be there. Um, And you may buy us drinks if you'd like. I'm not saying you should, but they they wouldn't be refused. That's all I'm saying. No, I, 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 no, we're, 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 bring out the Tranya, break out the Tranya. We're, we're, we're ready. We're ready and, and willing to imbibe, but it, hopefully uh, uh, the pandemic will have abated even more by then. And we can really just sort of celebrate, you know, all being together. And because uh, like Joe Augusta wanted to make casting fun. We want to make conventions fun. I think that can conv- <laughs> bring it back, bring back the fun. Bring back the the fun. Conventions. Yeah. <laughs> Bring out the fun. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but that was great. And and of course, if you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, we certainly hope you'll go on your favorite podcast app and rate us five stars. Um, and uh, you can also watch us on the Electric Now app, uh, which is available at your favorite app store and now on IMDb TV on the Electric Now channel. So that's very exciting. And um, listen to our sister podcast, The Great Cartoon Bar, bar Room with uh, Ashley Miller and Steve Melching. Best Movies Never Made with Josh Miller and uh, Steven Scarlatta. And of course, the 430 movie uh, featuring us. And uh, if you are interested in listening to some great uh, audio commentaries on significant episodes in the Star Trek oeuvre, check out Trexpert's Briefing Room, which is a separate podcast from Darren and I, uh, devoted to audio commentaries on significant Star Trek episodes. So that's a lot of homework for you guys. There's just uh, no end to the excitement, basically. Indeed, there is. And you can follow us on social media. Uh, where we'll, we'll hopefully be able to post some updates on Joe's uh, memoirs uh, because um, he's going to consult with us on some stuff and we're going to hopefully have some advice for him. And, uh, and you know, check that out at uh, Inglorious Trek on Twitter, Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram, and Inglorious Trexperts at Facebook. Um, so until next week, on behalf of Darren and myself, we want to thank our producers, uh, Natalie Miscali, of course, our great sound engineer, the great Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera, uh, and our uh, associate producers, Zach Raggetts and Peter Holmstrom. Uh, it takes a village to make the show, and we're very grateful to everyone who makes it possible, including Dylan Middlebrook, our uh, video producer. So uh, thank you, guys, and uh, thank you, our audience. It's been so supportive. These Three years. We're coming up at the end uh, of our third season soon. And uh, I'm pleased and proud to announce that we will be doing a fourth season. So we're boldly going where Star Trek never went before. That's right. Well, the original, at least. So, um, uh, but we will be uh, announcing our fourth season plan soon. I believe, uh, I believe this episode makes it one episode a week, every week for three years. That's insane. It is. That's insane. I never thought it would go this long. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. What more have you got to talk about? <laughs> well, that's what we keep saying. Like, what, what, every episode, what are we going to do next? We're out of things to talk about. And somehow, somehow it, it just, just keeps seems, going. It keeps going and going. It's like the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> it's, or, 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 or it's like Norman and I'm Mud. It just doesn't, doesn't stop. The Doomsday Machine. Okay. <laughs>
I think we should go now. Thanks for being with us. We'll see <laughs> Thanks you for joining time. us. Keep on tracking and gloriously, of course. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.